Ed Welsh, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, identifies three basic reasons why we fear other people. Uh, Firstly, because they can expose and humiliate us. Uh, Secondly, because they can reject and despise us. Uh, And thirdly, they can attack, either physically or verbally, uh, oppress or threaten us. Uh, That first fear, the fear of being exposed or humiliated, uh, we saw an example of that a few weeks ago when we talked about imposter syndrome. Uh, That's that fear that uh, lots of people have in the workplace or in uh, university uh, that their colleagues are going to find out that they're actually not capable of doing their job, that they're a fraud uh, and they got there under false pretenses. Uh, It's the same fear, this fear of being exposed that makes people uncomfortable when you stare at them for too long uh, or when people invade their personal space. Uh, It's a fear of intimacy that makes some people addicted to online gaming or social networking or pornography uh, rather than having real relationships with people. Uh, A fear of intimacy or or being, being known is connected with that second fear, that second category, that f- the fear of being rejected. Uh, fear of being rejected or ridiculed shows itself in people who have a, an obsession with reputation. Uh, when you're obsessed with your reputation, that can drive you to all sorts of poor choices. Uh, how you treat people, how you make decisions, how you prioritise the things that matter most. Uh, giving in to peer pressure is all about that that fear of rejection. Uh, It's a fear that can drive you to an obsession with fashion or body image or dieting or exercise, Uh, the sorts of things that affect the opinion people have of you. A fear of ridicule is behind many people's fear of public speaking. Apparently many people fear public speaking more than dying, which is interesting. They'd rather die than give a speech. Uh, but that's the way a lot of people talk. It's this, this fear of being ridiculed and rejected. Let me tell you a little about how this fear affects me. Uh, my tendency is to be a people pleaser. I love to be accepted and included. I hate to be late, I think principally because I hate to disappoint people. Uh, I like to be seen as competent and helpful. Uh, because that affects people's opinion of me. Uh, And I hate conflict. I don't even like family board games or card games where there's the potential for disagreements. Uh, All of that, I think, comes back to a fear of man. Or if you flip it over, it's a love of approval and acceptance. Now, what's good about that tendency is it means I'm quick to apologise and I work hard to mend relationships. I look for the good in people rather than to easily criticise them. It often means I'm a good listener and I'm slow to speak. And it means that I like things to be done well, which generally is a good thing. But within all of that, I need to watch my motivations. A desire to do things well can actually come from my own pride. Uh, It can come from wanting to fit in and be accepted rather than actually benefiting people. And I can actually want to mend relationships because I'm feeling uncomfortable rather than doing it for the good of other people. 
And listening rather than speaking can actually be a safe position where I'm actually not risking disappointing someone uh, rather than being because I actually want to help and understand their situation better. At its worst, uh, this sort of fear means I actually overlook the sin and bad behaviour in other people rather than addressing it. And it means I'm tempted to say or to, to, to preach or speak what's expected from my hearers rather than what's necessarily the God-honouring or true thing to say. And at times I can listen too much and not actually say enough uh, when words should be spoken. Well, that's a little about me, but I think that I'm probably not alone here. I think many of us are influenced in our choices and behaviour by the fear of men. For most of us, it's not a fear of physical harm or or verbal abuse, uh, but a fear of being humiliated or rejected. And what that means, the way we suffer or the way life suffers, is uh, our ability to genuinely help people suffers because protecting ourselves is more important than showing love to them because we often choose the option that will make us feel better and comfortable rather than being brave enough to serve them. So what's the solution? That's the problem. What's the solution? What does God say when we're tempted to fear men? Well, the solution to the fear of man is to fear God. If you want to fear man less, you need to learn to fear God more. Ed Welsh says, The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. Our problem is that we need people for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task God sets before us is to need people less but love them more. And I think he's right. Uh, We saw this choice of who we should fear in Psalm 34 a few weeks ago. Perhaps you remember it. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. What David had learned was that if he feared God, he would be delivered from these other fears. Now those fears could be physical harm, uh, like in this psalm with David, under threat from his enemies, but it could also be this fear of rejection or the fear of shame. That seems to be what's going on in Psalm 56, uh, which is more about words which attack rather than actual physical danger. Uh, verbal attacks. So verse uh, 1 of Psalm 56 says, Be merciful to me, O God, my slanderers, verse 2, pursue me all day long, many are attacking me in their pride. Uh, So verbal attacks. But look at how David deals with those attacks. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? In the face of these words, these, uh, these verbal attacks, as scary and threatening as they seem, David realises that ultimately because he fears God, because he's trusting God, his enemies can't harm him. And did you notice, in particular, 
what it is about God that he's praising. Uh, His word. As words are spoken to him, David wants to praise God's promises. You see, it's not simply a matter of choosing who you will fear, God or man, but you actually choose whose words you're going to listen to. Because the world is speaking to us all the time, isn't it? The media, advertising, our lecturers, our work colleagues, fashion magazines, our peer group, they're all speaking to us, telling us how we should live and what we should think and what we should look like and how we should fit in. But the cure for the damage of man's words is God's words, says David. Let his words guide you and speak to you about your identity and your worth and your acceptance. Fill your mind with scripture so that the words of the world can't hurt you or can't influence you. Don't listen to the world. The world says you're a loser, incompetent or hopeless. The world says you're guilty, unfashionable or unlovable. The world says you're ashamed or out of date or abandoned. But they're only the words that man speaks. What you need to hear instead are God's words. Words like what we read in Romans 8 last week. Words such as, You're a child of God. God's your father. You're heard and accepted. You have a place, an inheritance. You've been redeemed. There's now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus and the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in you. Those and many more words that God speaks to you are the ones that will actually help you not to fear the words and the opinions and the slander of people. Well, Luke 12, that's the passage uh, that we had read for us. It's another passage that compares this fear of man and this fear of God. If you have it open in front of you, just skim your eye back onto chapter 11. Uh, Jesus is criticising the Pharisees. Uh, In verse 43, he's doing it because they love the most important seats in the synagogue. What's their motivation? Their reputation is what counts. They loved praise and acceptance. They feared rejection and ridicule. And so verse 39, Jesus says, they're hypocrites. They're more concerned with outside, with appearances, with what people thought of them, when they should have been more concerned with what God thought of them, what they were like on the inside. And so at the start of chapter 12, Jesus warns his disciples against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus says it's foolish to care more about appearance than substance. It's foolish to act in one way before people because you value their acceptance, but then to live a different way in private. At a human level, Jesus says in verses 2 and 3 that it's foolish because eventually secrets come out. There's just no way you can keep secrets in forever. But it's especially scary when it's God who is the one who reveals secrets because there's so much more he can do to you than man can. So in verse 4 he says, I tell you my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more 
but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The opinion shapers of our world, they seem huge, they seem big and influential. Whether it's the fashion bloggers or that popular girl at school, whether it's the top athlete, uh, the sponsored with all the gear, whether it's the trendy new bar, whether it's the work pressure to produce and succeed, all of those opinions seem so powerful and big but they're not really, Jesus would say. When you step back and you look at them from the perspective of eternity, what's the worst they can do? Well, the absolute worst they can do is kill you. And that's remarkably rare in Australia. Any other harm that all of those powers can do to you is going to be better than that. Jesus' point is once you die, if you belong to Jesus, your suffering's over, that's it, and paradise begins. It makes much more sense to fear the one with far greater power than that, the one who has the power for eternity to send you into hell. It makes much more sense to focus your life on pleasing him rather than what pleases powerless men. One commentator on these verses puts it like this. He says, Let it be your preoccupation to be through and through the kind of person of whom Almighty God will approve when that day comes. Uh, Well, Jesus continues in verse 6. It's not simply about fearing the one who has the biggest stick. Uh, He goes on to talk about how God knows and has a plan for everything that happens to you. He remembers the littlest, least important birds that are sold and cooked and consumed by the dozen. They are part of God's purposes. And Jesus' point is, so don't fear that you have slipped through unnoticed. Nothing happens unnoticed. Why, the number of hairs on your head are counted. God knows them. And so verse 7, the conclusion is, don't be afraid that you're insignificant. You are worth much more than many sparrows. Those are the sorts of truths you need to listen to when fear and accusation strike. When you feel like one of those little sparrows plucked, stuffed and roasted in a pan, remember that God has a plan. Even in the midst of those difficulties, he hasn't forgotten and you're valuable. They're the sorts of truths that you need when you actually have the opportunity to speak words yourself. Uh, Verses 8 and 9, Jesus goes on to say, when you you come into the position of speaking up for Jesus. I don't know about you, but when that opportunity arises, for me the temptation is often to stay quiet uh, because I want to be accepted by people. My temptation is to value my friendship with that person more than God's friendship with them. My failure to acknowledge Jesus before men, though, risks Jesus failing to acknowledge me on Judgment Day. I need to value that praise, those words, more than the words and the praise of men. He puts the the same warning in a slightly different way in verses 10 to 12. Let me just read it out. 
Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now, the unforgivable sin, uh, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. It's caused lots of worry and confusion for Christians down through the, through the ages. People are worried that maybe they've committed the, this unforgivable sin without knowing it. Uh, Jesus mentions these same warnings in uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, recorded in Matthew and Mark, and, and when he speaks uh, these verses in those books, it's connected with the Pharisees who've accused Jesus of using the power of Satan to drive out demons. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, when when you say the Holy Spirit's work is actually Satan's work, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's not recognising what the Holy Spirit does. Now here the context is a little different. Uh, Notice in verse 12 how uh, Jesus says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will teach and guide you in what you should say when you're called to stand up for Jesus. And how will the Holy Spirit guide you? Well, he will always give you words which acknowledge Jesus, which enable you to speak for him. If you fail to speak those words, if you stay silent, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're refusing to submit to the Spirit's prompting. And Jesus' warning is saying if you consistently do that across your life, that's the evidence that you're not belonging to Jesus at all. There's no forgiveness if you continue to turn your back on the work of God's Spirit who's prompting you. And so in the end it'll lead to Jesus not acknowledging you. So it's really a similar sort of warning to the previous verses. Speak up for Jesus so that he'll speak up for you. Do it in faith that his Holy Spirit will give you the words to say at the time. So the big message from Jesus in these verses is this. Don't fear, don't be anxious, don't fear rejection or disapproval, but instead speak up. Speak for Jesus, live for Jesus. God knows and cares, you're valuable to him. He's given you his Holy Spirit who will guide and teach and strengthen you. Well, I want to turn to one passage before we end. It's such a good one, it's uh, too good to ignore. It's the second part of Romans 8. Uh, Verses 28 to 30 talk about God's plan for us in all things. Verse 28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We're tempted to fear bad things happening and yet here we're told that bad things will always result in good outcomes. God uses them and as we read down through those verses we see that he he uses them to, to make us into the likeness of Jesus, to be conformed into his likeness and ultimately to glorify us, to, to bring us to eternity perfected as Jesus himself. And so with that truth in place that God brings good out of every situation, what that means in verse 31 is that nothing can harm us 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, perhaps you're in the middle of some difficult situation and you're tempted to think that God's not really for you. But in verse 32, we get the promise that if God gave you his own son, why would he withhold anything from you? He'll give you everything. He's already given you the greatest gift. Why would he not give you something less, something smaller? God is for you. If you're tempted to hear some of uh, people's accusations against you, then verse 33 says, don't worry about it. God has justified you. You've been acquitted in the highest court there is. There are no other courts that can bring charges against you. You've been acquitted in the Supreme Court. And in verse 34, if you are feeling condemned by people or abandoned by people, then verse 34 tells us that the risen Jesus is by your side. He is your big brother, your legal representative, who speaks before you to the Father. And so what that means in verse 35 is well, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, none of those things. Or verse 38, death, life, angels, demons, present, future, height, depth, anything at all. Nothing can separate you. You are secure. But that doesn't mean that those things won't happen to the Christian. It's not saying these things will never happen to you, but it says that in those things, as you go through some of them, you will still be loved. You will always be kept. Or as verse 37 says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Christian will still endure persecution, perhaps famine, almost certainly danger and sword, and we'll all certainly have to go through death. In those things, uh, we will overcome them. Uh, the word is actually something like, we will hyper-overcome them. It's a pretty rare word, really. Uh, most translations say something like, we are more than conquerors. Now, that could mean that as those things happen to us, that the trials and the persecutions, we will completely beat them, But I wonder if Paul's not saying something different. Uh, That you will do something better than conquer them. Those things might actually beat you, but you'll actually endure through them and remain kept and loved at the end of them. Persecution might beat you, death might beat you, but you'll remain kept and certain. And that's better than conquering. That's more than conquering. Well, they're the words we need to speak to each other. Uh, God's words that replace the words that the world speaks. Uh, No wonder we can sing along with David from Psalm 58 that we read earlier. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? I want to finish with one final story of a man who believed those words and lived them out. Uh, It's taken from an ancient manuscript called uh, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. 
Uh, It was written by eyewitnesses or those who spoke to eyewitnesses towards the end of the second century. Uh, It describes the death of Polycarp, a leader of the early church. Uh, As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong Polycarp and play the man. No one saw who'd spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, uh, he tried to persuade him to apostatise. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Do you notice what we've got? We've got God speaking words, whether they were sort of words that were in the ear or whether they were just promises that Polycarp remembered. We're not sure. Sounded like they were audible words. God speaking words, man speaking words. Who will Polycarp listen to? Polycarp replies, 86 years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And he was burned at the stake. He was more concerned for the words of his Lord, for the opinion of his Lord, than he was the acceptance of man, even to the losing of his own life. And he died trusting these words of Jesus. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Alex is going to come and pray for us.